Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger, that's Jonah Goldberg, and Steve Hayes. Okie dokie. Well, we've got some things to talk about this week. And yeah, if you're sick of hearing about the indictment, I'm sorry, this is not going to be your podcast today. But we are going to talk about the various components of it, the political components, the legal components. Even if you've already listened to AO, we'll try to keep the legal stuff short. here. So last week, after our last podcast, uh, Donald Trump was indicted on 37 counts, one through 31 related to the willful retention of classified documents. I think it's relevant that those charges are not him taking documents from the White House. All of those charges stem from after the FBI asked for the documents back. Then, interestingly, 32 through 37 are your lying, false statements, obstruction, all the things he did to try to not give the documents back, uh, including along with his personal aide and former body man at the White House, uh, who was also charged in one of those counts. All right, so Steve, I'm going to start with you because we had our third ever staff editorial that was published today. I thought maybe you'd want to introduce some of that. Yeah, we we had been discussing since the indictment came down, um, weighing in on the, this. Um, we did not do an editorial related to the uh, indictment in New York, which I think virtually all of us agreed was rather flimsy, um, somewhat political and illegal reach with its, with its bank shot approach. Um, but this one seemed much more substantive, much more notable and uh, historic. So uh, we looked at the, both the indictment itself and uh, what we make of the charges, particularly in light of the the reaction that we've seen from, the mixed reaction we've seen from elected Republicans. And then also sort of the broader context into which this indictment fell uh, with Donald Trump looking like he may well uh, end up being a convicted felon at some point. And also, if polls today uh, hold, Sarah, you'll win our bet and he would be the Republican nominee. Um, It's a weird position to be in, um, certainly uh, not, I guess, unexpected if you've been alive for the past eight years. But we just thought it was worth saying sort of this this willingness of some Republicans, including people like Kevin McCarthy and Marco Rubio and others, to downplay or dismiss the indictment because they don't like Joe Biden or they don't like the Department of Justice or they want to talk about Hillary Clinton's emails is unwise given the the strength of the indictment. And we fall much more closely to the views expressed by Bill Barr, Trump's former attorney general, who said this is a, a damning indictment. And if half of it's true, the guy's in trouble. Jonah, um, let's start on this side of things then, (laughs) which is uh, the indictment itself, the reaction to it, the media reaction to it. I mean, sort of wherever you want to start. Where do you think this leaves us as a country if we're indicting a former president? I'm going to pretend I didn't hear you after wherever you want to start. Uh (laughs) 
because that's <laughs> how so most of my conversations with Jonah go. Um, well, then don't say wherever you want to start. <laughs> no, uh, um, only insofar as you know, a lot has been said already about all this. Not everybody has said it, but we're almost there. Uh, one of the few things that people haven't pointed out, Steve mentioned the brag indictment. Um, we were all critical of it. You, Sarah, were probably among legal commentators at the bleeding edge of critical of it. Um, and, um, and a lot of people, you know, are making this, you know, a lot of people who are critical of it are saying, see, uh, this proves I am not a reflexive anti-Trump person. I am making distinctions here and all the rest. But what we're not hearing from a lot of people who were critical of it are some I told you so's. And part of the argument at the time against the Bragg indictment was it will have an inoculative effect on a lot of people. People will look at it, say, this isn't very serious. This shows they're just out to get Trump. And it'll make, easy, make it easier for Trump when the next indictment comes for him to say, look, it's just another one of these things that is purely political um, and unfair and witch hunt and all that kind of stuff. And I think that criticism has been proven right. That for a lot of people, they've already been trained up to dismiss this stuff as part of the witch hunt and as, 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 as unfair and unserious and all that. And it proves that Bragg should not have brought the indictment. You know, that's where prosecutorial discretion was advised. Right, that I told you so. Point out of it. But look, I think it's terrible to you know to actually answer your question. I think it's absolutely terrible to have a former president indicted. I think it's even worse to have a former president who's indicted running to be president again, um, which is a you know a, an important distinction here. I mean, it would be one thing if they were indicting George W. Bush. You know, um, it's another thing if they're indicting the guy who's the front runner in the GOP race. And what that says about the GOP in the country is, is embarrassing. It's just embarrassing um, and worse um, than embarrassing. But what about the idea that the current president is indicting, the current president and uh, presumptive nominee of his party for the next election is indicting his most likely competitor? Yeah, I have, I have almost zero tolerance for this argument. Um, I think that um, it is amazing to me I mean, it's, it's not quite hypocrisy because most of the people who are most talking about how this is elect, election interference never believe that Joe Biden actually wants to run against Donald Trump. But the, basically, the wider world of people who are serious about politics and not in the tank for Trump, we've been saying for two years now that, like, Biden, his only way of winning is to run against Donald Trump. So the idea that Biden is trying to take Donald Trump out of the race with this prosecution just doesn't make sense to me at, 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 at the most basic, like we can assume all the cynicism, deep state chicanery you want about Joe Biden. It is against his interest to take Donald Trump out of the race. But wait, can't both be true that Joe Biden, again, let's use the most cynical version of this. Okay. Joe Biden indicts right. Donald Trump, which again, I'll talk about the difference between what the White House even knows about this versus the Department of Justice, but my most cynical version. Joe Biden indicts Donald Trump because it basically guarantees him the Republican nomination 
while at the same time making him easier to beat in a general election. It's a twofer. Yeah, okay. Possible. Also assumes that Joe Biden is a 3D chess master and has figured out how to do that and also figured out how to get Jack Smith to do his bidding um, and a thousand other things, right? I mean, um, again, the people who are saying this is electoral interference aren't making that argument, right? The people who are saying this is electoral interference, including Donald Trump, are saying this is Biden's way to take the front runner out, not to guarantee the front runner the nomination. So you have to find me someone who's actually making that argument because your argument's better than their argument. <laughs> But it's also wildly implausible and you don't actually believe your straw man argument that you're making in the first place. So other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, it's just a fantastic <laughs> debating point. But um, just more broadly, I think that there's this, this, just this, um, I think people get it wrong on this two-tier justice system thing. I think it's a really unpatriotic and deeply cynical and pernicious thing that a lot of people are doing, just throwing the rule of law under the bus and saying it doesn't exist because unless, unless you let Donald Trump get away with committing crimes, the rule of law doesn't exist is not a good argument. And the person who benefited from a two-tier uh, justice system was Hillary Clinton. It's not Donald Trump. Even Bill Barr was making this point on Special Report this week that the way to restore the rule of law is not to continue to make exceptions for politically powerful or popular people. It is to get back to the business of applying the rule of law. And what people are implicitly and sometimes explicitly saying is, if you're not going to have the rule of law for Hillary, you can't have the rule of law for Donald Trump. And I think that is garbage as an argument. Steve, jump in. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm where Jonah is on that. Sarah, can I ask you for, for a clarifying question on the, the legal stuff? And I think it's appropriate in sort of a, for you to give us a non- um, lawyer-targeted Steelman argument for this claim that Trump hasn't, in fact, broken the law, that this is all a bunch of Huey. Uh, what's, what's the best case for that? I mean, y yeah. if you look at the people who are either defending Trump directly or downplaying or dismissing this, their arguments take sort of one of several different um, paths. One is sort of, yeah, he did it, but it's no worse than what Hillary Clinton did, so we shouldn't. There's this double standard that, that Jonah, I think, just mentioned. There's another that says, yeah, he did it, but there's no, there's no evidence that it actually caused any damage, so really we should let it slide, and we haven't really looked at this seriously in the, in the past. And then there's a, another group, I think it's a smaller group, and it's a smaller group, in my view, for a reason, who's basically saying, nope. Everything he did is legal. Everything's on the up and up. Presidential Records Act says he can take this. The second he touches a document, whether it's a war plan or a description of a nuclear facility, um, it's his personal document. He can take it and keep it. He can do what he wants with it. Um, can you address that last one specifically? Well, let me address them all a little bit, which is um, there were 37 charges. I think there are real non-frivolous arguments to one through 31 who, that are all the same. They're different documents, but each one is the willful retention of a different piece of national defense information. Uh, I'm going to circle back to that. 
However, I haven't heard any defenses to 32 through 37. The Trump getting in his own way once again, being his own worst enemy and flooping around, sending incriminating text messages between staff and all of that. Um, That's the lying, the false statements, the obstruction stuff, the moving the boxes. So even if you knock out one through 31, you're left with five real jail time infused charges. Um, And those are going to come down to the evidence that the government has to present a trial. Yes, uh, the speaking indictment, such as it was, laid out a lot of that evidence. I would say, though, that there's a big difference between what the government can put into an indictment and what they can prove at trial and how credible those witnesses are and what their defenses are. Um, So I would just note that. Donald Trump will have a defense to those. They're going to be more fact-based. And remember the difference between what a judge does and a jury does. The judge is going to decide questions of law. That's going to be one through 31. Those are going to be legal defenses on willful retention. On 32 through 37, you're just going to see factual defenses. And that's going to be for the jury to decide. So leave those to one side. Let's go back to the willful retention. Um, First of all, on the double standard, we actually are talking about slightly different charges that they were looking at for Hillary Clinton, which is not worth getting that far into here. But again, Donald Trump wasn't charged with taking documents from the White House. Why? Because he was president when he did it. And for all the like making fun of Donald Trump could have declassified that, that's sort of beside the point. First of all, he's not charged with anything related to whether the documents were classified. It's national defense information. And I think there is a real question and one that isn't going to get resolved in this case, because again, he's not charged with it, of what abilities a president has to take documents from the White House. Um, You know, under this unitary executive theory, It doesn't matter that these agencies have said this is national defense information or anything else. At 11.59 on January 20th, he was the head of those agencies. Now, at 12.01, he wasn't. And then there was a new president, and that new president can say, I think that's national defense information, and I want it back. At that point, Donald Trump had the ability to go to court and say, no, they're my documents now. Suck it, big guy. And he didn't. Instead. He's telling his aides he wants to review the boxes themselves. He's moving the boxes to the bathroom. He's flying them to Bedminster. Um, That's where he makes stupid decisions. Uh, Okay. So on the double standard thing, they're different cases. Can I I ask you a hypothetical on this point? Yeah. Um, Which I got from a lawyer friend of mine. Just I want to give credit where due. So let's, for the people who say any document he had while he was still president, he could say mine, right? Because that's, that's basically Trump's argument, mine, right? Yep. Um, and um, so let's say in the last day in office, he goes down to the National Archives, takes out a hammer or whatever, or tells a guard, give me the Constitution. Yep. Right? He says mine. Yep. And then goes down to Mar-a-Lago with it, creates a museum and charges people 50 bucks a head to see the real Constitution. Yep. Is that Do a real not, Why are you giving him these ideas? It's <laughs> not president I mean, this right is now. really. <laughs> <laughs> but like, would that is, 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 I mean, obviously it's a crazy hypothetical, but it sort of fits the pattern that these people are claiming that basically the federal government is the president's property. 
when he is president, which I think is an awfully monarchical understanding of the presidency. Not but it the seems federal to me government. that you're saying that that's a... Not the federal government, the executive branch. Okay, all documents. No, the executive branch. Okay. Uh, the, it, so okay, that's, that's going to be relevant yeah. because <laughs> I'm going to push back on your hypothetical. Can you say that's, this F-16 is mine, right? I mean, the Constitution is not classified, right? There's nothing really classified stuff. Can you say, the, but let's say, hey, this F-35 is awesome. It would look great in front of Mar-a-Lago. It's okay, mine now. I actually think your hypothetical is real, but I'm going to distinguish these examples from what would make it a good hypothetical. Because, and the reason I'm pushing back on the executive branch thing is because when you're talking about the U.S. Constitution that's held in the National Archives or that F-16, there's another branch of government involved. So remember, the legislative branch is going to trump, no pun intended, the executive branch here. So if there's some, and I don't know this off the top of my head, but I would imagine there is. How come? I mean, the, the military is part no, of the... Yep, hold on, hold, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> If Congress has appropriated How money... How dare you interrupt my crazy hypotheticals? <laughs> if Congress has appropriated money or had any statute passed to take care of the U.S. Constitution or the documents that are being held by the National Archives, then all of a sudden that's going to be different. Same with that F-16. But what we're talking about are things that Congress has not had any statutory or appropriations uh, over. And that's where you get into this weird Presidential Records Act stuff where the Presidential Records Act says that the president, the, the current president, gets to decide what are his presidential records. So no, I, I don't so, actually I, think I, he could go I, to the National Archives or take the F-16, but your hypo is real. Could he... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just lesser examples. Yeah, I'd say my one pushback on your pushback on my flawed hypothetical is the printer paper on which the classified materials are printed out by the CIA is just as much paid for as the F-16 is by Congress. It's all paid for by Congress because Congress is the only thing that could pay for anything. So and it's all paid for by statute, right? Because Congress creates all of these executive agencies and then tells the president to go run them. So I don't understand the distinction between paying for the F-16 and paying for the eight and a half by 10 glossy paper. Yeah, again, I am not an expert on the statutory uh, authorization for F-16s, but I'm going to bet it's a little more than just here's your cash and you can go buy an F-16, but rather what the F-16 can be used for, where it must stay, which department it belongs to. There's going to be other strings attached. Now, if I'm wrong about that, then fine, your hypo is awesome, but I don't think I am. <laughs> I don't know that my hype was awesome. I just have a problem with these arguments that people are making. I'm, I'm now getting inundated with sort of bot people saying, you don't understand the president is the supreme controller of all things in the known universe. He has Thanos's glove. How dare you question this? And I think it's just all monarchical nonsense because they would never say that about Joe Biden. Well, that's true too. Um, but so you have this 2012 Clinton sock drawer case where a DC district judge who will actually have no precedential value of any real kind down in Florida, but nevertheless um, said that Bill Clinton could decide when he left the White House whether something was a personal record or an official record and that the National Archives can't go reclassify things. And here I don't mean classification. I mean, like, classify as a... Designate. Yeah, designate. Thank you. Um, 
And so, yeah, this is why he's not charged with taking the documents in the first place. That's my point. And that's why there's a real argument then over the Espionage Act, which that willful retention statute is under, because the Espionage Act says anyone who blah, 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 blah. Well, there's at least a question of whether that's going to apply to the president. Now, he's a former president at that point. Again, that's why he wasn't charged with taking the documents in the first place. I think that it would apply to a former president. But these are all things that haven't been litigated, which is sort of back to my point about, isn't this just really bad for the country? And was there any way around this? And is this different than Ford pardoning Nixon? And what do we make of the double standard? Steve, I'm coming back to you. Um, yeah, I want to ask you more questions. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, look, I think, it's, I think it's horrible for the, the country. I'm not personally persuaded by people who argue that, um, you know, there should be talk of, of a prospective pardon right now before we go through the process. I do think these are serious um, offenses that he's been accused of. And I think most Republicans, including Republicans who are now dismissing them, would have thought they were serious offenses if this were a Democrat. Um, so we should apply the law. Um, and the, the, the fact that what he did in his efforts to retain the documents is so clownish risks us not taking this as seriously as I think we should take it. Real quick, what about the pushback that, um, okay, fine, he willfully retained these documents, but there's no evidence or even allegation that, first of all, that he ever intended to use them to hurt the United States of America or that anyone was able to access them who intended to hurt the United States of America. So yeah, okay, he retained some documents. They went and got them back. Where's the harm here? Why are we putting someone in jail for this? Why are we hurting our country and our politics and potentially the next election over something that is a paper crime, literally? Yeah, I mean, first I would say because those are different crimes, right? Um, he's either guilty or not guilty of the crimes he's accused of committing. Um, I think the indictment is pretty strong on that. I'll be surprised if he's found not guilty. I think the reporting that we've seen contemporaneously, including from people who are around, who were around Donald Trump during this process. Um, the reporting in this Washington Post story out Thursday morning about um, the, the number of times that his own lawyers suggested that he try to uh, make a deal with DOJ because they understood that he was guilty of the things that they were likely to, to charge him with. Those are all reasons, I think, to treat these as, as um, separate offenses and to hold them accountable for them. It's, it's not clear at this point. It is true that the government isn't alleging in its formal indictment that the sort of secondary consequences and arguably more serious consequences that you mentioned happened. Um, so we don't know, for instance, that somebody was able to go into the bathroom at Mar-a-Laga and take pictures of the uh, top secret documents that were stored there. Um, but do we need to? And if, if we get to the point where the only time we would hold a president accountable for breaking the law is in a scenario like the one that you just articulated or the one that Marco Rubio 
articulated where he says, well, there's no allegation that the president sold them to a foreign country. Can we stop for a second and think about what that means? If there were an allegation or evidence that the president sold them to a foreign country, we have a much, much bigger uh, problem than we have with this. But that doesn't mean that we should just ignore what we have in front of us here. Um, yeah, so can, can I, I just want to add one point on this. Like, so, because I didn't close the circle before, it's embarrassing, it's terrible. The only divide, everyone agrees, and it, well, the weird thing is everybody agrees it's embarrassing and it's terrible to one extent or another. The question is, where do you put the blame for this situation? And the people who are defending Trump, you know, because most of them aren't, most of the serious people defending Trump in one way or the other, in usually anti-anti-Trump kind of ways, they're basically conceding he's guilty, right? I mean, that's what the, but Hillary did a two argument means is like, he's guilty, but so is she. If she got off, he should get off. Um, everyone, so everyone thinks it's bad. The question is, is it bad because Trump put us in this situation or because Biden via Jack Smith put us in this situation? And I am entirely on team Trump got us into this mess, right? And that the Washington Post piece is really fantastic because Basically, Tom Fitton, the head of Judicial Watch, who is not a lawyer, has an English degree from GW. I'm sure it's a great English program. Um, GW is, as my friend Dan Foster likes to say, the Harvard of safety schools. Um, but uh, he tells him, because of this 2012 case that Sarah mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, that he's figured out the secret sauce, why Trump doesn't hand, have to hand over everything. And all of these lawyers that Trump is paying through the nose to um, give him advice, he just rejects all of them because it's not the advice he wants, right? That's on Trump. This is a guy who was the president of the United States. All of his real lawyers are saying, dude, let's get you out of this. And he's saying, no, 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 I want to fight because they're my boxes, right? It's sort of like the Seinfeld episode where he goes, because he's my butler. Um, and I think that there's this, you know, you know, Steve's right. We don't know if foreign agents got into any of these documents or anything like this. But what we do know is that there were two Chinese agents who were arrested for trespassing at Mar-a-Lago. One of them got, I think, eight months in prison and then was deported to China. She was found with thousands of dollars of cash on her, like 10 zip drives, a, bu a bunch of different uh, uh, phone SIM cards, some cameras, um, all of this stuff that made it pretty clear that she was looking to take pictures of things. Now, again, we have no evidence that she actually got, you know, someone like that actually took pictures, got into one of these bathrooms. I mean, bathrooms lock after all. I mean, I'm told that's a really important point. Um, uh, but you know who knew about the Chinese spy who was on Mar-a-Lago property? Donald Trump. Right. And if you had known that, like, you're, not only is it possible, but in fact, the property has been penetrated by Chinese agents and you say, well, it doesn't really matter. Let's just keep it on that stage or let's keep it in the bathroom. The dereliction of responsibility there is staggering. And yet no one cares about that because it's Donald Trump and Donald Trump has, you know, I mean, he could come out and basically declare, I have the right of prima nocta and start trying to like bed brides on their wedding nights. And there would be a significant portion of the, the Mark Levin crowd saying he was president once. There's really no arguing with it. <laughs> 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turned into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, that's a good segue. Well, it was until it took that turn, but I'm going to take it anyway. Of the reaction to the indictment on the left and the right. Um, Let's start with the left, because I think it's going to be a shorter conversation, which is a lot of hand-wringing over the judge and how she should recuse herself, not because she was appointed by Donald Trump, but because she was appointed by Donald Trump and because in a previous ruling, she ruled in favor of Donald Trump and in fairness, in a ruling that was then reversed 3-0 by two other Trump appointees and a W appointee that said she didn't have jurisdiction to hear the case in the first place, which is a pretty, we call it, you know, a bench slap. Not great, Bob, but also district court judges do get things wrong all the time. Um, So is that working the ref from the left? Uh, Are they just concerned because they feel like Donald Trump is like some cartoon character that like always gets away with it in the end? you know, should the left just like sit this one out, be quiet, let the let the right work this out on their own? Steve? I mean, probably all the above, right? Look, I think there are real questions about um, the way that she handled the, the previous case. On the other hand, if I, if I were on the left and um, making points, wringing my hands, furrowing my brow about uh, Eileen Cannon, the point I would make is that if this were in fact um, a deep state plot to bury Joe Biden's, um, you know, strongest likely presidential, uh, opponent. She would not have ended up with this case, right? I mean, if this were all sort of wired in the background, uh, the powers that be the, the puppet masters, uh, at the DOJ would have, in fact, found a way to smooth the, the path to a prosecution and having it end up with her uh, suggests that that conspiracy is certainly not um, at play the way that it seems to be in the fevered minds of some people on the right. So it's funny, in the dispatch Slack channel, which is obviously off the record, uh, I will not ascribe names. Or but Jonah's about to talk about it anyway. Uh, but there's this guy whose name rhymes with 
Peeve Schmays. No, uh, um, there's, there's, no, there are other people. I'm not, it's actually not Steve, but there are other people, people whose judgment I deeply respect, who are on both sides of this question about whether Cannon is in the tank for Trump, will prove to be in the tank for Trump, or whether this is, in fact, bad for Trump. I am on the, well, always open to the corruptibility of people in the era of Trump. And admit she may prove herself to be in the tank in some way. I think the recusal stuff is stupid. I think you guys covered it really well on AO. It's just there's nothing in the law or in precedent that says she has to recuse herself yet for anything. Um, but I think this is actually bad. Like, uh, let me back up and do the bigger, broader point. Trump's got almost no legal case, I would argue, particularly for the last six or five indictments, whatever it is, right? his day in court is not going to go well based on the facts and the law. He's got a really good political case, right? He can go for one juror in a state where juries tend to um, favor celebrities disproportionately, um, where half the jury pool basically has voted for him, and he can just go for nullification, right? Um, so his political case is stronger than his legal case. It does not help him to have a woman, a judge, who is widely perceived to be in the tank for him, as the presiding judge over this. Because he can't say, oh, this judge hates me, this judge is out to get me, um, which is what he wants to be able to say. And, um, and I think the left is, first of all, they're just catastrophizing as they often do in these things. Um, I think that some of them are probably trying to work the ref, but like Lawrence Tribe and Michael Beschloss and some of these guys, I just think that they're in a bubble of uh, sort of Trump resistance catastrophization and don't actually have a serious argument to make. All right, let's talk about the reaction on the right. Most recently, Mike Pence went on a podcast radio show and they asked him, uh, if you were elected, would you pardon Donald Trump? And he said, look, I'm not going to answer that right now. Um, Donald Trump has every right to present a defense. There are serious charges. We'd have to cross that you know, bridge if we got there. And they were horrified. Um, they pushed back multiple times, very hard against him, saying, if you agree that this is a political prosecution, then it shouldn't matter. You should be agreeing to pardon him up front. This seems like an interesting dividing line in the 2024 GOP race for president. Um, and I say interesting because, as Chris Sununu recently pointed out, when the guy's 40 points ahead of you, and he's been federally indicted, shouldn't you be trying to use that as some ability to move up in the polls? And yet that's not quite what we're seeing, Steve. Yeah, and, and again, indicted on, on serious offenses. This is not, very few people are, are suggesting that Republican presidential candidates look at the, at the Alvin Bragg indictment and make an argument about it. I mean, we all, I think, well, I shouldn't say we all know. I think people have strong suspicions about what happened that led to that indictment, about the underlying Trump behavior there. Ron DeSantis referred to it in sort of in passing in a kind of a puckish way or when the indictment came down. But nobody's campaigning on that. And there's really no argument that people, that, that Republicans should be campaigning on that. This is totally different. I mean, if you go back and look at the statements that Republicans made about Hillary Clinton and her servers during the 2016 campaign, virtually every single statement can be applied to Donald Trump. And I think the behavior from Trump is worse. And I was somebody who 
thought then and continues to believe that Hillary Clinton should have been prosecuted for what she did. This is an easy thing for Republicans uh, to, to, to campaign on. And, you know, David Drucker had a really interesting um, item. I think it was in Dispatch Politics newsletter, not a standalone piece, um, the other day. We talked, the, the dispatch politics team talked anonymously to advisors at uh, Republican presidential campaigns and super PACs and asked them sort of why they're not running on this. Why are you doing this? And I found that the answer is interesting, if ultimately unpersuasive. Basically, it was ah, people really aren't paying attention to this right now. We'll have time to make these arguments later. There are other things that will come up. Um, now it's just sort of now is just not the time. I think that's crazy. Of course, now's the time. These are crimes Trump is credibly accused of. There's abundant reporting suggesting uh, just how cavalier he was about his position, about his retention of the documents, about the handling of these very sensitive documents in the first place. And by the way, it's consistent with everything we know about Donald Trump for the past eight years. And, you know, it's funny, Marco Rubio had this statement in July of 2016 where he just really lambasts Hillary Clinton, tees off on her, highly irresponsible for keeping uh, sensitive documents on a server that could have been penetrated by foreign governments. It was vulnerable um, and, and ends the, the statement by saying something to the effect of, we just can't ha have Hillary Clinton as the next president, or we can't, you know, we can't abide Hillary Clinton because with the Clintons, there's always so much drama. That was Rubio's closing argument. Think about that in the context of Donald Trump. And this is, these are not frivolous things. I mean, I, I didn't think most of the, the Clinton offenses were frivolous things. But look at January 6th. Look at the call he made to Brad Raffensperger in Georgia to try to bully him to steal the election. I mean, these are just monumental offenses. And what you have is this collection of Republican uh, contenders who are saying, in effect, man, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. It's as if they all think something else is going to get rid of of Donald Trump for them, and that each of them, with the exception of Asa Hutchinson and Chris Christie, stands to win the support of Trump's most ardent backers by being friendly to Trump until that that fall comes. And I think it's it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I agree with all that. I I think the the sort of Fundamental thing, it kind of gets back to the, um, my point about the Bragg indictment. Um, everyone is looking at this as if, um, you can freeze in amber everybody's attitudes and expectations and understandings and impressions of who you are until you decide to jump into the time stream and make the statement that you want to make. And the problem is, is that, you know, I always have this conversation with my daughter who likes to delay making difficult decisions. And I'm always like, you know, sweetie, not making a decision is a decision too. And a lot of these people think that they can be silent or wait for the right moment to criticize Trump's behavior 
And the problem is, is that Trump's misbehavior is like a leaking nuclear power plant. The radiation is coming out all of the time and it's mutating people. And so like, if you wait until just the exact moment to say, look, this behavior is terrible, you've allowed for the passage of a lot of time where other really bad behavior has gone on and all you do is invite people to say, well, why all of a sudden do you have a problem with Trump's behavior? Was everything that came before okay? And if you don't have a good answer to that, you know, so Mike Pence's answer is yes, right? Mike Pence's answer is that up until January 5 at 11.59 p.m., Trump's presidency was firing on all cylinders and going great. And then January 6 happened and now he's bad, right? Uh, Ron DeSantis' position is that the Trump administration was bad because it didn't live, it didn't fulfill all of the promises, but the promises were good. And the personal behavior is not worthy of comment from, from Ron DeSantis for the most part, right? Only Chris Christie is saying, look, it's the whole schmear. It's the whole guy that's the problem. And so just like waiting to find this, this moment to sort of jump into the mosh pit just exacerbates the problem of people thinking, well, you're not actually doing this on principle. You're doing this as a cynical sort of market timing maneuver. And you've basically been okay with everything that came before. And I think that that's the fundamental. And, and in the process, you've looked like a beta male, right? Or you've looked like a, a, a weakling compared to this guy who dominates the field because you've been afraid to say what you think is the truth until this moment. And I just think it's a terrible look for all these guys. You know, since I've been randering, I'll just quote Rabbi Hillel. If I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? If you cannot make the argument that you deserve to be president more than the front runner, why the hell are you in the race? And that's the problem that most of these people have been dealing with is they don't want to make the argument that they're more qualified and more deserving to be president than the guy who's beating them. No, there's, there was a, um, a column or a newsletter from Nate Cohn at the New York Times, uh, I believe it was Wednesday, and he makes a point that's been sort of uh, one of the points I've made now for, for eight years about conservative influencers, Republican Party leaders, what have you, and their sort of unwillingness to, to speak up. Let me preface it by saying I don't think that if even the Republican Party um, elders and virtually all conservatives stood up and spoke out about this indictment in the way that, say, Bill Barr has called it a devastating indictment, said the president's trouble, said these are serious, you know, these are sensitive documents, these are serious crimes, that Trump would disappear tomorrow. We saw that, that dynamic basically take place in the aftermath of January 6th, when I think a lot of people thought this probably is the thing that, that does Donald Trump in, and, and he rose again. But it is the case that when you have conservative influencers and, you know, media personalities uh, on the right and Republican Party leaders who refuse to condemn behavior that they would be eager to condemn um, in virtually any other politician, I think, including some Republicans, the, the rank and file Republican voters get the message that there's no there there or they hear people like Marco Rubio or Kevin McCarthy or others 
who make excuses for Donald Trump or attribute this simply to an overzealous partisan Democratic Department of Justice, when that's just not the case. I mean, I'm perfectly open to the possibility that, you know, that there are, that we'll find out things in this process that don't reflect well on DOJ. We've seen this in other things, uh, as we've discussed here before. But if you don't have leading conservatives just saying what they believe, I mean, it's not even like I would suggest they should say things they don't believe. If they would just go out and say the things that they believe, I think it would shape the way that, you know, the movement conservatives across the country, rank and file Republican voters understand what's happening here. Because right now you have so many of those conservative influencers just dismissing or downplaying this or choosing even if they have concerns about the underlying behavior or would criticize the president, choosing to emphasize the problems that they have with DOJ or the double standard they cite with respect to Hillary Clinton. And it gives such a distorted view of the reality and, again, of what these people themselves believe, that it's like uh, they're, they're pushing this myth on the Republican electorate. And it, the cumulative effect is, well, leaves us where we are today. It feels like part of this is, though, that the argument, the best, there's two different types of arguments that the other 24 hopefuls could make. One, Donald Trump's a bad guy. There's just no evidence that that would stick with GOP primary voters. That's been tried many, many a time, right? But the second one that I think is more viable is Donald Trump can't win. But the evidence for that is actually pretty scant as well. Um, Not a lot of evidence that, A, when you ask Republican primary voters who they think is best positioned to beat Joe Biden in 2024, they think Donald Trump is better, more likely to beat Joe Biden than, say, a Ron DeSantis. And then when you look at the actual data for the question, you know, the head-to-head matchup between Trump and Biden, and DeSantis and Biden. It's at least a coin flip. Yeah, there's polls that show Biden in the lead. There's a couple that show Trump in the lead. They're all kind of within the margin of error. Maybe Ron DeSantis is a couple points ahead of Trump, but again, within the margin of error, and we're quite a ways out, and Ron DeSantis hasn't really been under the microscope. I mean, I would be hard-pressed to say that I think Ron DeSantis clearly is a better pick for the Republican Party against Joe Biden if all you cared about was who was more likely to win in November as of today. So how are they supposed to argue against Trump effectively? Set aside the morality of it. What is the most politically effective argument to get Republican voters around the electoral case? I don't know. Um, but look, I mean, look, I mean, again, this is, this is one of these things that, it's sort of what I was from fring about before. Everyone wants to talk as if like this is year zero. Like this is the, the world began this morning. The past has significant influence on the presence. And so you've had a lot of Republicans who spent eight years um, either being silent or celebrating the flaws of this guy. So it's going to be hard to all of a sudden... You know, find them. No one has very few people who are still in office. I mean, Liz Cheney has muscle memory on this. But even we should remember Liz Cheney was not particularly critical of Donald Trump until January 6th. Um, You know, uh, the. 
And I, I am not, I mean, as much as, as much as I would like to see some people actually have some backbone about all this, I take your point. The timing is hard. It is difficult in the, in the heat of the moment when you have this rally around Trump effect to say, actually, the deep state is right about this guy. But I think that one of the arguments you can make is you can say, this is what I wrote about in the G file last week. Like, you can say, yes, the deep state is after Donald Trump. Yes, the FBI has been politicized. But wouldn't it be better to have a president who didn't make their job so unbelievably easy? You know, what if we had a president who actually behaved in a way that didn't give indictments on a silver platter to the political enemies? Um, you know, this is this is the problem with Donald Trump is that he makes the job of our enemies easier and he scares away voters that we would otherwise get if he behaved properly. He's a political problem. He may be right in his heart about this way or the other thing, but he repels more voters than he attracts and he creates problems and drama for himself that, or that harm Republicans going back to every election we have had since he was elected, you know, 2018, 2020, 2022. I think you can make that political case in a serious way, or I, I kind of think Ron DeSantis would be smart to do like a accidental open mic moment um, where he airs some of these points, but it's going to take effort because you, you know, again, education, voter education is real. So is voter maleducation. And we are deep, deep, deeply down the road in voter maleducation over the last eight years. Yeah. I don't much care about what Republican voters, who Republican voters believe would be the most formidable opponent to Joe Biden, because 70% of them think Donald Trump won in 2020. And they're wrong about that. Like, they can think that they can believe that, um, you know, it, it might affect their behavior with respect to, to the primary. So it's not an easy argument to say, well, you just should believe these other things. And then, then, then things would be different. The reality is, I think it, it is the case that Donald Trump would be the weakest or among the weakest of the Republican candidates to go up against Joe Biden. There's a reason Joe Biden and the Democrats are desperate to have Donald Trump as their opponent. And I think the, the best argument is the one that Jonah just mentioned in passing, 2018, 2020, 2021, and 2022. This is not a mystery to people. I mean, you can go back and you can really quantify the, the, the costs of embracing Donald Trump to the Republican Party. And I think that's as good as argument as, as any in this current context beyond sort of the, the big moral case. I think you're right, Sarah, that there are, it's, it's not only not for, for obviously for the Trump base, but even for many rank and file Republican voters, they're just not going to be persuaded by the, the things that, you know, I might take offense to. Like, they don't care. And to the extent that they do care, they think it's an attribute, not, not a negative. Um, so fair enough. I, I, I mean, I still think it's important to make those arguments because ultimately it's good to sort of at least set down markers about what's acceptable behavior and what's not and what's true and what's false. But as a practical matter, and we included this in our, our editorial, the practical case, I think, against Donald Trump is that He's a loser. He's been a loser. And, you know, I, I, I guess I don't buy, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a sophisticated political strategist and, and um, 
probably for a reason. Probably I would, I would run a lot of losing campaigns. But I, I don't understand why Ron DeSantis doesn't do this now. I, you know, I, I would make that case. He already has alluded to it in the past when he talked about a culture of losing around Donald Trump. DeSantis won by 20 points in Florida. I would be, I would be hammering the case that Trump is poison for the Republican Party. Um, you're not going to beat him by imitating him. And until you confront him, I think it's a lost cause. The only thing I'll take issue with there is the idea that Democrats are clamoring to have Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. A, I think actually lots are very afraid of having Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. And then those that aren't, I would say like, that's not really proof that they know something because the Hillary Clinton team wanted Donald Trump as the Republican nominee. Uh, So, you know, nobody's a super genius who can see the future. Um, not on the Republican side, not on the Democratic side. I would say they might be wrong. I literally haven't heard any Democrats who don't want to face Trump. Oh, I have all the time. All the strategists I talk to, they'd much rather face one of these others. There's just a lot more um, known knowns with some of these other guys. They're regular politicians. Donald Trump brings out parts of the voter base that is a known unknown. Um, He's unpredictable. It's 2016 problems. I think it's funny because I think probably you talk to more elected Democrats and I talk to more operative level Democrats. And that's probably a pretty big divide. All right. I have a few not worth your times that I want to do sort of a lightning round on or not worth your times. Uh, (laughs) A, the stories around Hunter Biden have largely flown under the radar in the mainstream sort of national press. And I don't mean the investigations, because those haven't wrapped up. So like, how much can you really say about an investigation that continues? I kind of mean this child support stuff. There is a child that is his in Arkansas that he didn't pay any child support to, denied the child was his, then started paying child support too, and now is going back to say that he wants to pay less child support. Okay, he's paying $20,000 a month. That's, I'll grant you, high. (laughs) Um, But like the text messages that are coming out where he ghosts her for, you know, well before the baby's born, after the baby's born, then puts her on payroll so that she can get health insurance then jerks her off the payroll so that her health insurance is gone. And the text messages just sound so cavalier. He's asked a judge to block her from changing this now four-year-old's last name to Biden, which I don't even know how you could argue that someone can't change their last name. I can change my last name to Biden if I want. That's you just go to the courthouse and do it. I mean, this guy, and then, by the way, and this is a tricky point, I'll grant you, but the president of the United States lists his grandchildren on a regular basis and does not include this little girl who is his grandchild. Is this not worth my time? I think it's worth your time. I look, it's, it's hard, right? It's hard in, um, this political climate, um, to figure out how to calibrate some of these things. I am, entirely comfortable have, having I'm entirely comfortable to say that that Hunter Biden is a broken person right um, I have some sympathy that from personal experience having gone through what I went through with my brother to what 
drug addicts do to a family. Um, and, uh, and so that gives me a little trepidation about, you know, going too high on the hog about this stuff at the same, or high on a horse, I should say. Um, at the same time, it's obvious, like, like, you know, one of the things that drug addiction does is it brings out the worst version of people. And the worst version of Hunter Biden is really bad. I mean, much worse than the worst version of like my own brother or other drug you know, people who have battled with addiction. It's really, really bad. And, and presumably he's clean and sober now. And so he has now no excuse whatsoever for being such an ass towards his own child. Um, so I have no sympathy for, um, for him in this case. How much I'm supposed to weight this against Joe Biden in this context when there are so many sort of easier things to level against Joe Biden that actually have to do directly with Joe Biden is just sort of a complicated thing. And I think that there's a lot of desire out there to say, oh, look at this shiny thing over here about Hunter Biden as if it's a serious argument about Joe Biden's presidency and like the Burisma stuff, maybe that is, you know, there's some of this Biden crime family stuff that has real teeth to it and is legitimate. I don't think it has to do with Hunter Biden's child support payments. Okay, I think that's true, except for part of Joe Biden's brand is that he's this nice, empathetic, kind person. His son is a drug addict. I don't think that's his fault. I don't blame him as a father, like, but for the grace of God, um, you know, go I. However, if you know your son is a drug addict and you know he has hurt other people, what responsibility do you then have as the grandfather of this little girl to make sure that she has support in her life, um, stability in her life, men in her life? And Joe Biden's just pretending this isn't happening because he loves his son. I understand that. But your son's an adult. This little girl's four years old. And so I guess I do think that reflects on him and should tarnish that brand of like, oh, Uncle Joe, he's just such a nice guy. He's not being very nice to this four-year-old. I, I agree with you on that. And, and I find the arguments that Hunter Biden has made or that his lawyers have made on his behalf uh, in an effort to lower these child support payments, pretty appalling when you look at the kind of money that's been sloshing around in his life uh, for a while, including um, the the lifestyle he's leading now. Um, there's a pretty clear contrast between the kinds of things that he's able to avail himself of now, uh, including reportedly uh, private jet flights to <laughs> to these hearings. Um, that suggests he should be be willing to pay more money. I, I think the way that they've handled this, uh, at least what we know in public realm, is, has been poor and they deserve criticism. On the journalistic question, um, which is where you, you started, I agree with you entirely, Sarah, if I'm inferring your, your point correctly, there has been a dearth of mainstream media coverage of this. And it's easy to imagine that if, the parties were reversed here, that this would be getting a lot more attention and that it would be seen as a reflection of grandfather's um, parenting um, or 
compassion, empathy, what have you. I say that, and then I look at our coverage or lack of coverage of it. And I think there's a meaningful distinction to make, and it's a totally self-serving one. So people can criticize us if they like. We haven't spent much time on this. Um, It's a real not worth your time question for us. But I would argue that we we don't really do that. We don't spend a lot of time on these kinds of things. Anyway, you'd be hard pressed to go back and find much writing um, at length or discussion of, say, the Trump children. Um, and there's, there's a lot to discuss there. Um, not that it's not important in some way or it doesn't tell us um, important things, but just with limited resources, what we choose to, to, uh, to put our place our attention on. And, you know, there's this mantra, people are, are sick of me saying it internally. We don't always hit the mark, but the, the general guidance is, is this something that's going to be important in six days, in six weeks, in six months? If it is, then we're good to cover it. If it's not, we should probably move on to something else. Um, you know, I think this has, you can make an argument that this would be important enough to cover. Um, but I, I guess I don't leave this conversation and think we really got to get somebody on this story. All right, my next not worth your time question mark uh, is the office of the special counsel. Now, this is very different than the the Department of Justice special counsels, et cetera, et cetera. The office of special counsel are the ones who do these Hatch Act reviews. And they found recently that the White House press secretary violated the Hatch Act when referring to MAGA Republicans. They said that that was a campaign slogan You can't talk about that from the White House. That would be partisan politics from the White House, which the Hatch Act prohibits. The White House has since continued to talk about MAGA Republicans. They're basically just going to ignore the Office of Special Counsel ruling that this violates the Hatch Act. At the bottom of that note from the Office of Special Counsel, they have a little footnote that says, we found the same thing when the Trump people were talking about MAGAnomics from the White House as well. And I guess this is more of a like, oh, okay, so I guess we're all just breaking norms now. These things actually do have consequences for later administrations. So is it worth my time to care about the fact that the White House, like we're just not doing the Hatch Act anymore? Um, I, I, I'm not that offended that the White House is using the term MAGA Republicans. I mean, I am, but not from a Hatch Act standpoint. Um, I, I've always thought the Hatch Act was sort of a little bit of silliness on terms of what you're saying, at least, that's different than showing up to political fundraisers and stuff. Um, Is the Hatch Act worth my time anymore? Or because of the Trump administration, now Biden administration, like they're not restoring norms. They're just going to do whatever they want to. Fun. All right. Do I care, Jonah? I'm kind of with you. I mean, some of these Hatch Act enforcer types kind of strike me like, Toby Flenderson from The Office, you know, it's like, really? And it's just going to be a party. Is that his last here? name? That's yeah. pretty impressive that you know his last name. I just knew him as Toby. That's so funny. Um, some of us do our homework. Uh, <laughs> no, so I, uh, uh, I think part of the problem is it's a camel's nose on the intent kind of argument. That's the only place you can go with this, which is that. I think the MAGA ruling is kind of stupid. I don't like the use of the MAGA stuff because invariably Biden and Kareem, 
Pierre, whatever her name is, uh, they they do it deliberately with a broad brush, right? The imp- their, the imprecision with which they use it is deliberate because they want to make more people MAGA than actually are, and they want to make legitimate ideas that predate MAGA, seem MAGA. It's it's a deliberate shotgun approach to political rhetoric. Does it qualify as campaign rhetoric from the, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, if you're going to have that standard, then half the editorials on the right and the left in this country in the last seven years are actually, in fact, in-kind campaign donation campaign rhetoric because I'm sure the New York Times uses MAGA all the time. I mean, I don't know that, but I, I feel like that's true. Um, Wall Street Journal, certainly the New York Post, you know, National Review, we've probably used MAGA as a shorthand identifier more than a few times. I don't think we were carrying water for one party or the other party when we were doing it. And so I think it's a bad decision, but the decision to ignore the Hatch Act Flendersons um, is probably a bad decision too, precisely because it lets, sets a precedent for ignoring them the next time when they're actually right and that it's much more clear cut. But I don't know. We're also going to have this weird thing, Steve, where they can find it as a willful violation of the Hatch Act, which is a problem potentially. And the problem for the Biden White House is if you have set yourself up as the sort of enforcers of of the standards, of the returners to norms, you sure better return to norms, however silly you think the norms are. And the fact that this ruling came and they've basically decided, ah, screw it, we don't care. I think that doesn't reflect well on them. Um, You know, having said that, if you look at the context, it's worth noting that Donald Trump used the White House in August of 2020 as the backdrop for the Republican National Convention. I mean, this is like, <laughs> <laughs> the context here is really matters. Fair and point. That's a fair point. They've, yeah. they, you know, that, that's what Trump did. Now, I would argue that the better course of action is to look at those distortions from the previous four years and uh, say we do want to return to to norms. And it is worth making these distinctions. I don't think, I think the use of MAGA is a, I mean, it's a pretty small um, thing to focus on. I like the Hatch Act for small other reasons. For them, for, for, right? Like, why would you violate the Hatch Act just so you right. can say the word MAGA? Like you have this whole, like, we're returning to norms. And then you're like, no, let's give it away for this. Who cares? Really well, I think it could be because Democrats really want to run against <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> well played, Hayes. Hey, can I ask you an idea worth of time thing real quick, Sarah? Yeah. Because as you know, one of my favorite pastimes is to sh- to point out bad lawyering or bad clienting um, to to you and David and other lawyers. I just, I, I enjoy it um, in a schadenfreude kind of way. Um We've referenced it a few times, this Washington Post piece about how all of the lawyers that Donald Trump had gave him one set of advice, which was, we can settle this, we can get out of this really, really easily, blah, 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 blah. But Tom Fitton, head of Judicial Watch, said, no, no, no. We can fight this. We have the law on our side, National Records Act, and blah, 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 blah. And Tom Fitton, again, is not a, not, not, not a lawyer. Um, I'm just wondering when you see things like this, does it, does it give you agita or do you, 
do you find enjoyment of it when the lawyers are proven right and the non-lawyers are beclowned? I mean, I'm just kind of curious, how do you process these kinds of stories? No, because I think I have like the memories of being in rooms where, you know, five people are giving really good advice and the one moron has been invited into the room and gives bad advice. And the principal is like, yeah, but I like the bad advice. I'm like, I bet you do. That does sound more fun, doesn't (laughs) it? Uh, And you don't win in the end because your client loses. And nobody cares that you were proven right. Um, Yeah, and it just, I mean, (laughs) you've got former Southern District of New York prosecutors saying, hey, I think we can just work this out. Let's just get this off your plate. And then like Lulu McGee over here is like, but what if we don't? (laughs) So yeah, no, I just, I feel for the lawyer, I guess you're right. I just, I, ugh. but it's not a good feeling and it's not a like, aha, you were proven right. It's just like a, (sighs) (laughs) Um, but you know what they say about law practice? It would be awesome except for all the clients. All right, last, definitely worth your time. Steve, we just had a member event in Houston, my hometown, half a mile from my parents' house. We got fajitas, carnitas, some empanadas. It was yeah. incredible. Oh, and don't forget the pecan pie. The pecan pie was awesome. Food, food was fantastic. Um, we, we went to, uh, I think it's, is, I don't know if it's to say your favorite restaurant, but certainly one of them. This was a highlight for you. The... The Sarah gift game was strong um, when we found out that we were going to Good Company Kitchen and Cantina, Cantina and Kitchen. Um, and you did a very good job. You, she, she insisted on ordering for the table um, and the food was exceptional. We had dinner with uh, a couple of our uh, sponsors, Tom Fish and Alan Hassan. And it was great. Uh, dinner itself that night was great. And then we had this event the next night uh, for, I think, 200 plus dispatch members and prospective members. Um, the, the three of us talking uh, probably for too long up in front of the room um, and having a chance to do a little happy hour beforehand and a little happy hour afterwards with with the members. Fantastic event. It's, you know, we started out, I, I've told this to some people when we were down there. We started out doing these things thinking it was like, Hey, nice, nice for the members. Get out, you know, shake some hands, meet some people, uh, talk to them. And it turns out it's really a selfish thing because I get so charged by doing this and talking to people and listening to sort of how they came to the dispatch, what they like and what they don't like uh, at the dispatch. Um, and it's just it's a it's a really great uh, opportunity to hang out. Uh, we are going to do more of them in the I think late summer and certainly into the fall as we for step up our our plans and we'll be announcing where soon but it was a great event jonah you got to experience intercontinental airport without air conditioning so that'll be a fun memory that you can keep you're welcome yeah it was like flying into the caribbean with one of those like open air um airports (laughs) with uh that wasn't open air um (laughs) true story i did an event in texas I believe it was Houston, like 15, 16 years ago, something like that for National Review back in the day. And one of the gifts they gave us, they all gave us some pecan pie. And I was taking it through security. And one of the security ladies said, what's in the box? And I said, it's pecan pie. And 
she started to make fun of me and made fun of me in front of all the other, and it's like, get a load of this city slicker. He calls it pecan pie. It's pecan pie. And you say pecan pie. And so I'm kind of curious, is, are, you, are, you, are you a traitor to your roots here? Or is there more room for a diversity of pronunciations of pecan or pecan? I just want to be very clear. I grew up in actual pecan country. Like one of my jobs was to go pick up pecans out of neighbor's yard so that they could mow their yard. Uh, so I grew up <laughs> in Pecan Creek near Pecan Grove. Like these are the neighborhood names because it's all just pecan trees. So I don't know where you were. There are other parts of the country that pronounce it pecan, but it ain't mm-hmm. pecan country here in Texas, in Fort Bend County. Okay. No way, no how. And with that, I will fight all of you in the comments section over this. I will also fight you over Good Company Cantina's tortillas. They are incredible. Um, And we'll just take the fights from there. So thank you for listening. Become a member of the Dispatch if you want to fight me over either thing or something else. Uh, And we'll talk to you next week. 